Becky? You're right, there's something wrong here. Greetings and salutations, everyone, and thanks for clicking play on episode four of The Unfranchised, a podcast where we focus on smaller films that might not be blockbusters, and they definitely aren't sequels, prequels, reboots, remakes, or any of the kind of franchise filmmaking that unfortunately dominates cinema and cinema discussion these days. My name is Robert Taylor, and I write about film at cultspark.com. I'm joined, as always, by my colleague Stuart Smith. Stu, we banged out our first three episodes of this show in short order, then we sort of took a break over the holidays in an early January, but it's good to finally be chatting with you again, sir. Oh, I'm always glad to be back. I may be last on your dial, but I'm first in your heart, Bob. Always. Always and forever. So tonight, we are going to take a look at In the Tallgrass, a Netflix original horror film released this past fall that was directed by Vincenzo Natale who's probably still best known for the 1997 cult film Cube. Maybe more importantly, In the Tallgrass is based on a 2012 novella written by the legendary Stephen King and his son Joe Hill, who is an excellent writer in his own right. So, Stu, there are a couple of reasons why I think In the Tallgrass is an interesting pick by us for this episode. For starters, it will help us further define the rules for this show, because one... It's our first adaptation that we've covered. And two, you could probably make the case that Stephen King films in themselves are a franchise. And yet I still find myself comfortable with counting a small film like In the Tall Grass as a member of the Enfranchised. Are we in agreement there? Uh, you know what? I would, I would call this a franchise if anybody was actually doing the whole Stephen King shared universe thing. Right. Uh, which is actually, it's a little surprising that nobody has really gone for that, uh, you know, since, you know, the MCU has taken off and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it, it's just like, it's right there. It's really kind of, it's a little bit surprising. They're although I guess kind of doing it with the TV show Castle Rock. But yeah, yeah I, a little bit. I think part of the problem is, is the rights are all over the place. Yeah, that, that definitely doesn't help. So that probably hurts a bit. Yes, in the tall grass, like many King adaptations, you know, some of them have little hints and, and shout outs and Easter eggs, but, you know, a lot of them are standalone adaptations, and in the tall grass is definitely a standalone adaptation. Yeah, very much so. So I, I feel comfortable counting it. It's an original film. Uh, again, it's an adaptation based on a Stephen King book. Stephen King, Joe Hill book. But I mean, if we threw out adaptations, we'd be throwing out <laughs> tons of, you know, smaller films that I think weren't weren't coverage on here. Correct. Well, and this one just kind of this one definitely just sort of came and went. I know that there was there was a little bit of buildup for it, you know, before it came out. But then it just kind of, you know, like a lot of Netflix originals, uh, nobody really knew how to talk about it, I right. guess, after it came out. You know, um, and so it, it was just kind of, it's just kind of there. So I, I was eager to, uh, I was, I was eager to check this out because I, you know, I like Natalie's work. Uh, I actually, Cube is still a great, just a great low budget, uh, concept film. 
And I, I still really like Splice, even though that one kind of falls apart a little bit. Uh, I, I really enjoyed that as a piece of, uh, you know, Guillermo del Toro-esque, uh, you know, creature horror. Those are conveniently the two films of his I've seen. And I will offer my opinions on those in a second. But before we get to that, I did want to say that the second reason this is going to turn out to be an interesting episode for us is that you you and I both liked the first three movies that we covered on this show. This one, not so much. When we were planning this podcast, you and I talked about, you know, wanting to be positive and support filmmakers and encourage creativity and encourage people to take chances on making and watching non-franchise films. But inevitably, we are going to cover films that don't work for us. And, you know, we're going to go into our focused discussion here in a minute. But it's fair to say up front that In the Tall Grass definitely falls into that category. So how do you envision us, you and I, navigating that sort of thing on the unfranchised on this show? You know, it's it's a bit of a perplexing approach uh, just because, you know, it's like I don't I don't want to just you know, take a giant dump on a movie just because it's fun to do. You know, I don't, I don't ever actually enjoy doing that. Um, if it's like know, some big $200 million part nine of a French, it's easier. Because, right. It's, you know, it's a lot easier, but yeah. you know, it, it's, I, I will say that with this, it's like, you know, there, there are things to appreciate with it. Uh, like I can find with almost all movies, even movies that are bad, I can usually find something that's, that's, you know, that's worthwhile about it to some degree, but I don't, you know, it's, I think part of what makes film discussion interesting is, is discussing why things don't work and figuring out what it is that, you know, where something may or may not have gone wrong. Uh, you know, I, I think that's kind of important for something like this, especially, you know, especially with the prominence of, of Netflix original films. I mean, those are becoming a, a, a huge part of the company's entire platform. And so, you know, when they, are cranking out as many of those as they are, I think it's important to kind of understand, you know, what they're making and, you know, what they're prioritizing and perhaps why, uh, you know, and understand, you know, why maybe, you know, why this didn't work. Right. So, I mean, we're going to be critical, but try not to be, you know, mean. And I also, you know, at the end of all these episodes, we kind of end by doing a segment we call who would we recommend this movie to and i think one of our goals is always try to recommend you know imagine a group of people who this film might work for even if it didn't work for us like these are the people this is the group of people if your taste align this way or however we decide to define it who may enjoy this movie so even if it's something that maybe doesn't entirely work for us we're trying to spread the word towards people who may enjoy it all all in favor of that okay so our first segment is always what baggage did we bring to this movie? Um, you had already mentioned Natali. Uh, Splice and Cube are also the two movies I've seen of his. I don't think I like either of them as much as you do. I'm okay with Cube. I think Cube's fine. I'm not sure it's worthy of the cult following it has, but it's an, inter- <laughs> but it's an interesting film. Splice did not work for me at all. Um, it felt... Really? Yeah. It, I'm a little surprised. I think that. the Guillermo del Toro comparison is apt, but it felt like sort of a weak mimicry of a kind of del toro monster yeah i mean you know i certainly wouldn't Um, i I certainly wouldn't hold it up in the same you know regard but you know it's 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 it is ambitious uh you know i like that it's 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 you don't see a whole lot of sci-fi horror films like that anymore right that's true so uh 
But obviously, the bigger baggage we bring to this movie has got to be Stephen King, correct? I oh, mean, absolutely. It, this is a sure. Stephen King adaptation, and for 90% of that, I mean, it's pretty big on the poster, based on the novella by Stephen King and Joe Hill, and that, I assume, would be the reason 90% of the people who click play are going to click play. Um, at the end of this episode, a little treat, Stu and I are going to both name our favorite Stephen King adapt- adaptation, our most overrated Stephen King adaptation, and our pick for the most underrated Stephen King adaptation. For Stephen King fans who are listening, we're going to do that at the end of the episode. Stick around. Um, I'm a huge Stephen King fan. I actually read the novella this book was based on uh, a couple years ago, and I really, really liked it. Um, you haven't read it, correct, Stu? No, I have not read it. Um, it's a very dark, very moody, very effective piece of horror writing. It's super creepy. Um, there are some of the usual King tropes. There's a creepy kid. There's kind of a children of the corn vibe. <laughs> you know, it's not, maybe not his most original work, but it is, it is a very unsettling and it only like 80 or 90 pages, like, you know, short, brutal piece of fiction. I really enjoyed right. it. And when this, this movie was announced, I, I wasn't sure it could work as a film, but I was definitely curious to see somebody try. Um, also, I mean, Stephen King adaptations have gone well lately. Uh, Netflix has done right by him with a very good Gerald's Game adaptation. Dr. Sleep was really good. It Chapter One was really good. Uh, I haven't watched any of the episodes of The Outsider, but it's getting good reviews right now on HBO. So, like, if you're a fan of King's work and seeing that stuff adapted for the screen, things have been going swimmingly. There's reason. There was reason to be optimistic. Correct. Third bit of baggage, I would guess you and I are bringing... Uh, because I know you well, is a love of Patrick Wilson. We're both fans. Well, who wouldn't be? Uh, who wouldn't be? People, what's not the, people what's with not no the taste. love about that guy? Seriously. Patrick Wilson is fantastic. I, I love it when he pops up and, you know, things I don't expect him to pop up in and maybe I'm not super interested in, but my eyes, you know, my brow perks up and Patrick Wilson's involved. And, and it's great when he's in something that I'm actively looking forward to, like when he was in casting season two of Fargo. I was just so excited. I just, I'm just happy to see that guy put in stuff. So that's what I'm, that's what I brought to the movie. Anything else on your end? No, well, I see, I, I'm kind of in a bit of an interesting spot because, you know, I've, I've definitely read, uh, some of King's work, but I haven't read a ton of his stuff. And also just in general, I'm more of the horror guy. On right. The show. That's less your genre. Right. Um, you know, and I also haven't seen a, you know, a, a ton of, uh, adaptations of his stuff. So, you know, I'm, I'm coming in a, a, a little bit more, uh, you know, less well versed as it were, um, you know, than probably even a lot of other people might be. Um, you know, so I, I didn't really have a whole lot in the way of expectations. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly a fan of his work. Uh, but I also kind of lean more toward, you know, his more fantastical type stuff uh, than his straight horror material. Sure. And this definitely falls under straight horror, I would think. Uh, see, uh, maybe the maybe the novella does, but the movie itself, uh, I mean, it. Mm. I mean, there, there there's definitely horror elements, but it, it felt. I mean, it's not. It's also definitely not. You know, more fantasy, but I don't know. It's it's uh, it's really it's it kind of defies. Uh, direct classification like that i think in a little bit which i guess you could say the same thing about splice and cube it kind of fits nicely with those that would probably be under you know cube was definitely in the horror section in your video store back in the day right but you know not a hundred percent 
you know, full-blooded horror movie, perhaps. Right. So let's get into our thoughts. This film did not work for me, Stu. Uh, a couple things up front. I'm going to put a mild spoiler warning on this episode. This episode will be largely spoiler-free. In the Tall Grass is about a brother and sister named Becky and Cal DeMuth, who are traveling across country for reasons that become clear over the course of the movie. Becky is six months pregnant, and she they end up pulling over alongside the road in sort of nowhere, middle America, dilapidated church on one side of the road, and on the other side of the road in an endless field of tall grass. And when I say tall grass, I mean like 12-foot-high tall grass. They hear a young boy calling for help from the grass, uh, exit their vehicle, and head into the field to try to find this child. And as you can imagine, it's based on a Stephen King Joe Hill story. Things do not go well from there. It turns out getting into this field of tall grass is a lot easier than getting out of it. Supernatural shenanigans come into play, and before you know it, basically everyone is fighting for their lives and just trying to get back to the highway. So that's basically the plot. Um, you had to expand this story to get a movie out of it. Um, this is something that happens a lot with short stories, novellas, shorter novels. They expanded it, and it just it didn't work for me. I could tell you right now, the time loop element is not something that's in the short story or in the novella at all. Huh. That is completely imagined for the movie. That did not work for me, mostly because if when you introduce something like that, I kind of want it to make sense. I kind of want to understand right. a little bit how it works or why it, it's happening. This movie doesn't really explain either of those things. It's just there's, there's time loops. It's not clear how it works. There's no reason for really for why it's happening besides giant evil rock. And <laughs> and it just didn't work. And this was made more egregious. I actually just by sheer coincidence watched both Happy Death Day movies uh, like right before I saw this. And mm -hmm. those films also deal with time looping. It's a, it's a different type of time looping. Those movies have a Groundhog Day, characters living right. the same day over and over again. But so much more fun, so much more inventive, much clearer rules on how the time loops work there. And just, just by coincidence, in the tall grass, really, from the time loop perspective, sort of paled in comparison to how it's handled in Happy Death Day. Um, I thought there was some cool imagery uh, there's the, that one shot that's the close up of the gr grass that flips upside down. Then you realize it's in, you know, it's in a water drop. I think Natalie does some clever things, you know, Natalie and the cinematographer and the effects people do some clever things with the camera. Uh, there's also some poor imagery. There's the stuff where you see sort of grass growing around the baby in the womb <laughs> and it goes in and out of people's bodies. That grass isn't as nearly as foreboding in the film as it was in my head as I read the book. I think it looks very plasticky, like it's on a set, or it looks too CGI. It just, it never really sort of came together to me as like a scary location, which it really needs to be when the title of your movie is in the tall grass, and the whole movie <laughs> is about people being stuck in the tall grass. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just, this thing lost me in the first 15 20 minutes or so and it's not a, it's not a very long movie um it's like what hour a little 40. over hour and a half it's an hour 40 i think with credits hour 40 something like that um i just i just couldn't it perplexes me because there's a lot of potential there but i just i never found a reason to care about any of these characters I never felt invested in any of them. I never thought like, well, gee, I really hope they make it out. 
which should be, you know, kind of the primary driving force for a movie like this, for a story like this. And I just... You're probably actively looking for the main female lead to get out only because she's pregnant, not really because she's a fully developed character. And, like, basically (laughs) anybody else, who cares? Right, yeah, pretty much. Um, I The thing that, that really struck me is that, and it's really interesting that the time loop element isn't in there uh, in the novella because it, it it's even more perplexing that they added that in there because what I think would have really, really, really helped this out is if it wasn't just one long narrative. It If they had done like a series of uh, vignettes you know, of various people's, you know, interactions with the tall grass and experiences being in there and, you know, making, making it kind of a broader adaptation of the concept as opposed to, um, you know, a straight adaptation of the story with a new twist. I think that would have gone a long way to making this a lot more engaging, especially when you don't have, you know, if you're not going to spend a, a, a lot of time trying to, to build up and develop these characters, then, you know, have a bunch of different stories that, you know, that we go through pretty quickly that have an interesting hook to them, you know, that, you know, showing different experiences, you know, in the environment and stuff like that. And so it just, you know, it, it, it didn't lean enough one way or the other into either exploiting the concept or, or giving us, you know, people and scenarios that we can really invest in. Yeah, I something has to work. Either we right. have either we have to be invested in the characters or we have to be intrigued enough by the setting to, you know, and even if we're not totally into these you know, finding out what happened to these people, <laughs> at least making an interesting place to spend time with. You know what I mean? Right. And uh, do you agree with me that it just feel it, it didn't feel intimidating enough, like the location that they're stuck in? It, it didn't feel intimidating enough. Um, it's like, oh, okay. It's, you know, you know, you, I think they did a good job at first at, you know, sort of delivering a, a, a claustrophobic feel to, you know, and the confusion that comes with trying to navigate through, uh, you know, foliage like that. I don't know if, I don't know if you've ever, you know, you're a, you're a East Coast city boy. I don't know if yes. you've ever, <laughs> yeah, the movies vary. It's the mid, mid, you know, I'd fair to say Midwest, right? Like the Midwest, yeah, United I mean, States, where there is nothing. Like there's just a dilapidated church next to this field by the side of the road, and there is nothing. Yeah, I mean, this is probably like in, you know, Illinois or. And you're correct. Have, you would be more familiar than I would. Right. So you know, I don't, I don't know if you've ever actually walked through tall grass like that before. It's really disorienting. Um, you know, so I, I think, you know, credit where it's due, I think they did a really good job of, of, of setting that up at first, but then that, that's just kind of it. That's really all you get for the whole movie, aside from kind of the supernatural, magical, fantastical elements of, oh, now they're 50 yards apart. Oh, now they're two feet apart or whatever. So, yeah, it just it, it never really seems to do anything all that interesting or engaging, you know, and when you're in such a you know, a, a samey environment like this, it just gets really repetitive. It just becomes almost immediately uninteresting, you know, when you're not introducing new concepts or new hooks or anything like that, that really, uh, you know, take you to unexpected, uh, you know, unexpected directions or whatever like that. So in the book, there are really only four main characters, Becky and Cal, the brother and sister, 
who are played in the film by Laisla de Oliveira and Avery Witted. I, I hope I pronounced those names correctly. Along with Ross, who's Patrick Wilson's character, and Ross's creepy kid. That's it. It's about a brother and sister who get lost in a mystical grass field and all the bad things that happen to them there. The movie expands the role of Ross's wife a little bit and also adds Harrison Gilbertson as Travis McKean, who is the father of Becky's baby and has tracked her down and ends up lost in the grass with everyone else. Travis is purely a concoction of the movie, as is, again, the time loops that allow these people to keep bumping into each other in sort of bizarre science fiction-y ways. See, God, this just this just becomes more and more perplexing <laughs> by the second as I, you know, the more you the more you talk about the you know the the novella. It's like this could have been so much better, even if they had just you know stuck a bit more to uh, to the source material. God, uh, this is just nah. Well, what's interesting now, now, now? I'm just getting mad. What's interesting is Travis, who is again the father of the baby the unborn baby, he's the one that kind of has the biggest character arc, even though he's completely made up for the film. Correct. I mean, you can see that, right? Yeah, no, that's fair. So I thought that was interesting. Did you think I, I couldn't tell if this movie was trying to make any sort of statements on abortion or adoption or did, did it cross your mind while you were watching? Uh, it might have if the movie hadn't just completely just lost me. Sort of, sort of, <laughs> you know, parenthood and the duties yeah. of a mother and the duties yeah, of a father. Maybe. I feel like this movie's like trying to touch upon those themes, but can never really solidify any of them into anything. I mean, there's certainly the framework for that there, you know, and I actually kind of expected more of that. It, um, it could have been a better movie if it sort of picked a viewpoint in regards to impending parenthood and right. the stress the stresses of being pregnant the stresses of being close to birth the stresses of potentially being a single mother before your baby's born if it could have tapped them in some more of that stuff from a sort of real you know relatable level i think the film might have worked better but it's all just kind of window dressing like almost like trying to uh, well, like, it, it, it doesn't really see that. And that's kind of somewhat the surprising thing is that, like, it's all there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you think I even thought, like I said, I even thought it was being set up in some way. But it just seems completely uninterested in, in you know, approaching any of that, in addressing any of that. I don't know if they just didn't want to. But, yeah, I just uh, there's so much there's so many layers, so much nuance they could have, uh, you know, tried to go with. And they just didn't seem to i don't know maybe maybe it's all in the editing room floor who knows and again it, it's a difficult thing when that stuff is right. in the source material and you're expanding it to an hour and 40 minutes and you have to try to add this nuance and depth to the characters i'm not saying it's easy right they just didn't really pull it off okay so we're going to get into some mild spoilers here but i don't think it's a big surprise at all that patrick wilson is playing the villain in this film And again, that's a really mild spoiler because it's telegraphed, if not outright stated, very early on. I mean, the first time that they had kind of have a close up of him. Yeah, you kind of know he's the villain. Um, Patrick Wilson as a villain in a Stephen King horror movie. Sure, bring it. And you know what? He's not good. (laughs) It's not it's not it's not. I don't know if he wasn't invested. I don't know if the script just didn't give him anything to work with, which is likely that it's man. I, I hate seeing my boy struggle like this, too. 
you know, did I, you think he acquitted himself or, or I, you know, I don't know that anyone could have really done much with what they were giving. I mean, like I said, they're, these are all just kind of, these are the most broadly defined characters possible. You know, I, I'm str- I honestly could not tell you anything about Patrick Wilson's character other than he's just there to be the big bad. He's there to be the bad guy. And you know, he's like, He's a real estate guy, and he... Which he says, like, three times. Yeah, I just... There's just nothing... It's, there's nothing. There's nothing there. So, yeah, very disappointed to see him in a role that was absolutely not suited for his talents, and he obviously, I didn't think, was able to elevate it in any significant way. I don't know. I wouldn't say any of the actors are outright bad in this movie. It's just nobody really gives a performance that basically allows the film to be elevated in any way. It's fair, and there's, there's, like I said, there's just, you know, there's nothing, there's not much on the page that anyone could have elevated, and there's not really a whole lot in any of these scenarios that really allows for a lot of real personality to, to, to shine through. Well, I mean, it's a dark, depressing story. I mean, I, I don't want to ruin it, but some of the more disturbing parts of this movie, especially the one you're probably thinking of, comes straight from the book. Hmm. But that, I mean, again, the book is just, and, and the thing is, is that can work as a novella, a sort of a fierce, cutting, sort of just, you feel it in your gut, the awful, the, the awfulness of the situation, that can work in an 80 page story. Yeah. Do we just think that maybe some books can't work as movies and shouldn't be adapted as films, especially novellas and short stories where there's not a lot of texture and depth <clears throat> to begin with? Yeah, well, I, I think that, Almost anything can be adapted well. It just depends on who's doing the adapting, you know, what what they can bring to it. I, I mean, I'm not sure. I, I think my uh, answer is more, I'm really not sure. Some things may just work as great bits of short horror fiction, and they're just never going to work trying to turn it into a film. Sure. I mean, you know, I mean, they're... There's they're uh, it's funny. As far as, like, adding stuff to flesh out the narrative, it's, it's not as egregious as The Lawnmower Man. Do you know the story of The Lawnmower Man, too, and what went down there? Are you aware? I, I am aware. Yeah, yeah, so for those listening, The Lawnmower Man is, uh, I'm going to say, loosely based on a Stephen King short story, and that's really that's, selling it short. The Lawnmower Man is like a 90-minute movie where two minutes of it are based on a Stephen King short story, and it was originally being sold as Stephen King's The Lawnmower Man, King sued and said, hey, I, none of this is my story, uh, won the lawsuit or, or they, you know, they capitulated. They ended up taking his name off the film. Uh, right. You know, this isn't a case of that. This isn't right. that egregious. But again, that was a case where they're making a movie called Stephen King's The Lawnmower Man just because they can put Stephen King on the title. And it's you can't adapt that short story. It's a it's a ridiculous one scene I don't know how many page short story. It, it, you can't make that a movie. And they couldn't. And they got sued for their time. And in the, in the tall grass, isn't that egregious? When I read the book, I thought, yeah. And when I heard they were announcing the movie, I thought, yeah, there could be a film here. But it's difficult, well, man. It's a difficult task. Well, again, I, I think it, it uh, it's all in the approach. And, it, it, you know, like I said earlier, I think this this could have worked if they didn't try to make it one continuous hour and 40 minute long story. You know, expand on the concept. Take, you know, take take the groundwork that's there. You know, evil rock traps people, you know, in this isolated environment and just have a bunch of different, you know, 15, 20 minute stories. Do you think it would have worked to flesh out the characters by 
adding sort of flashbacks to their lives? Or would that have taken us too far removed from the conceit of the movie, which is that you are stuck in the grass along with these people? See, I, actually, well, I, I think probably what would have worked better is if the movie weren't just so hot and ready to get into the tall grass, as it were. It happens like, fast. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, it's like within what the first it's ten minutes under sure. un, under under ten minutes for yeah. him to get there. Spend some more time, like just setting it up. Um, you know, setting up either you know either group of people, either the brother and sister or you know Patrick Wilson and his family. Um, you know, just don't don't be so eager to to get into the thick of it, as it were, to get out into the weeds. Set things up a little bit. You know, you don't you don't have to to just immediately jump in there, despite, you know, the title being what it is. OK, so we'll go to our final segment. We're always going to try to do on the show, Stu. Who would we recommend this movie to? Uh, Stephen King completionists. Yeah. People who really, really enjoy seeing Patrick Wilson playing a villain. I mean, if you're watching the A-Team because Patrick Wilson's kind of the antagonist, <laughs> you know, Patrick Wilson's your boy. and You like it when he's being bad. This this is in that set. Uh, I, who else, Stu? That's uh, all people, I got. People people who have a lot of laundry to fold because this is the kind of movie that you can just kind of like fold some clothes, look up. We oh. weren't going to be mean, but man, that was close. It's just, you know, it's, it's one of those things where like, you know, you can you can listen and follow along, you know, not be looking at the screen the entire time. Look up. Oh, OK. You know, weird stuff's happening. All right. Yeah, cool. All right. Let's go. Um, I, I don't know, man. <laughs> With the desire to not be mean, I, I I'm not sure who else. I, I OK, can hey, look, if you're paying for Netflix, so- you're paying for Netflix. And if you're into horror, it's up there. You know, there yeah. there may be people who enjoy it. I'm sure there are. I guarantee you there are people who enjoy this movie. Okay, are you ready, Stu? We're going to do f- our favorite Stephen King adaptation, our most overrated Stephen King adaptation, and our most underrated Stephen King adaptation. So first, let's do favorite. You can go first if you'd like. No, you go first. I want to hear this. My favorite Stephen King adaptation is The Shining. Um, I know he doesn't love it. I know I don't think critical consensus these days is unanimous on it. I mean, it is still Stanley Kubrick working at the absolute top of his game. I've read that book. I think Stanley Kubrick's film is better than the book. Uh, the book goes down some roads with giant hedge animals that start running around and things that never really sat well with me, maybe because I saw the movie first. I think it's creepy as hell. I think Nicholson and Shelley Duvall especially give fantastic performances. I know the big criticisms of it are, well, it's more just a... I know King's criticism is that it doesn't deal with sort of alcoholism and family issues and and kind of brushes that stuff off to be more about the ghosts in a creepo horror movie. I don't think it brushes that stuff off as much as King thinks. I think that sort of uh, Jack's alcoholism and Jack Torrance's alcoholism and sort of the family abuse and stuff still makes it through in the movie. It's absolutely one of my favorite horror films of all time. Your turn, sir. See, this one's this one's a little bit challenging for me. I think. Probably the best, like just the best film. All right, Shawshank Redemption is both his best, the best adaptation, and also the most overrated. <laughs> it's both. It's both. Although okay, I could see I, that. I, and I only say that because I say it's overrated because you know every, you see so many people. Oh, it's the best movie ever made. It's a 
good movie. It was it's wasn't a, it like the highest rated movie on IMDb for like the right. longest time? And I just I don't understand that at all. Shawshank Redemption is a pretty great movie. It's it's a really good movie. It's really good. It's great. I, I thoroughly enjoy it. It has wonderful performances. The score is gorgeous. You know, it's got, it's just, it's really, really good. But one of the greatest films of all time, I, uh... All right, so wait, 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 I gotta be clear on where you're standing here. So you're, the Shawshank Redemption is making your list for most overrated King adaptation. I think it's, I think it's it's also maybe your favorite? It's because it's a good movie. It's a really good movie. It's the one that I enjoy watching the most out of any of them. Um, and also because my original choice was The Shining, but I know you would reach through your microphone and kill me for overrated, uh, for, for overrated because that movie is boring as hell. Get the fuck out of here. Oh, my Come God. On. I, I've seen that movie four times, and I am bored out of my skull there every is, single time. It's almost the... It's one of the best films. It's just a persistent sense it, of dread. No, no, there's frame. not. No, no, uh, it is not. It is a persistent sense of boredom. My most overrated Stephen King adaptation is The Mist. Have you seen that, Stu? It's been a long time. Um, people love The Mist. Horror nerds love The Mist. Almost none of it works for me. It's a Frank Darabont film, just like The Shawshank Redemption is. Right. I just think the characters are too thin. None of them stand out. They're all sort of caricatures. Uh, it doesn't really work for me. It's a monster movie. And then it has this sort of notoriously dark ending that I don't think the movie earns at all. It, I'm fine with dark endings. I'm fine with, you know, sort of pitch black, sad endings, assuming the movie earns them. This one, I don't think it's earned at all. You get to the end of the mist and I'm just like, come on. It is really shocking, and I think that that's one of the reasons why it still just stands out to people so much, because right. nobody really saw it coming. Yeah. You know, and it's it's pretty harrowing, I, I will admit, but, you know, it's it, the movie's fine. I'm not a fan. Um, you know, but, yeah, no, The Shining, oh, my God, I just I'm bored out of my skull. Okay, my I struggled with most underrated, so here's my most underrated Stephen King movie, and I'm going to have to qualify this a little bit. The movie right. I'm going to pick is David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone. Now, the thing is... We are is, in agreement. That's the one I was going to pick. Oh, excellent, excellent. So here's why I picked it. I don't think it was underrated at the time it came out or in the 1980s. In the 1980s, when I was, you know, start, especially the late 80s, the movie would have been a couple years old by then, but, I, you know, it was on video shelves and I was really starting to get into horror as I became a teenager. Um, everybody loved The Dead Zone. Everybody watched The Dead Zone. It, it was a big film at the time. But in the years and decades since... I feel like that one's kind of fallen off everybody's radar and where people, yeah. st- people still talk about the shining. People still talk about Carrie. I mean, there is sort of these legendary King adaptations from the seventies and eighties that stick around. And I feel like nobody really talks about the dead zone at all anymore. And I feel like anybody under the age of 30 probably hasn't seen it. They should. Uh, why did you pick it? Um, because I, again, this, this one, you know, really veers more into kind of the more, uh, fantastical material of Kings. Uh, you know, it's also, it's also a very, uh, his, his best material is the stuff that is the most human. Mm-hmm. The one that, that really, you know, that really gets you inside, you know, the, the heads of these characters. And I think that the movie does a really good job of that, you know, of, of really making you feel the, just how weird it must be to have a, a power like that, mm-hmm. you know, to just kind of out of nowhere and your life is completely altered. Uh, the world is completely altered. 
you know, because, because of what you can do. And, you know, it just, it's, I don't know. It, 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 I think they did a really good job of putting you into Christopher Walken's shoes in the midst of this, you know, just unexplained, inexplicable thing that's happening. So for those who haven't seen it, Christopher Walken plays a young man who he's in a car accident. He's in a coma and he wakes up from the coma. He's basically developed a psychic ability that when he touches someone, he can, it's not exactly read their minds, but he can see visions of their future. And it's sort of some of the things he goes through after acquiring this ability and sort of uh, how his life changes and responsibilities that fall to him because of this. And it's definitely a horror film, but like you say, it's much more character based. It's really good. Uh, you also kind of get to see Martin Sheen play a very different president or potential <laughs> president <laughs> that he does in the West Wing. Um, it, it's, it's the, you know, all that's missing to be a completely, you know, evil twin version of Jed Bartlett is a, <laughs> is a black goatee. It's also a very relevant film in the age of Trump, I think. Oh, 100%. I mean, it's the only, the only difference is that like Stilson is really competent. Yeah, correct. <laughs> as opposed to being uh, evil and incompetent still right. just evil that, that's really the only functional difference because i can 100 percent see trump holding up a baby to shield him from a hail of gunfire listen to this cast and crew i i, I looked up the dead zone on uh wikipedia briefly just it's great it's so this. great so christopher walken Tom Skerritt, Martin Sheen in the cast. Listen to this crew, directed by David Cronenberg, based on the book by Stephen King, produced by Deborah Hill, screenplay by Jeffrey Bohm, he of, you know, Lethal Weapon 2 and Indiana Jones of the Last Crusade and uh, the Lost Boys fame, music by Michael Kamen. I mean, how about all those people? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's definitely a hell of a lineup. So yeah, if you haven't seen The Dead Zone, go check it out. That That's cool that we both picked the same one. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really good. Okay, that pretty much wraps up our episode on In the Tall Grass and other things Stephen King. Uh, this movie was my pick, which means you're up next, Stu. Tell the fine people listening what they have to look forward to. All right, so we are going to be talking about Shadow, which is a uh, Chinese period film directed by Zhang Yimou. Uh, it came out in 2018 in uh, in China, but it wasn't until like the very end of the year last year that it that it showed up in the United States here on on Netflix. And this is it is a visually striking film. Uh, it's you know judging if you if you can kind of tell by the name, uh, it's almost monochrome. Um, but it, you know, it's it's a uh, I don't want to say it's like a romance of the three kingdoms type film, uh, you know, but it's it's definitely a, a you know kind of a martial arts wuxia. Uh, <laughs> I was just going to say I would have just left it at next week. Stu will be teaching me how to pronounce wuxia, 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 wuxia. Okay, I, I'm looking. I haven't watched it yet. I'm looking forward to it. I really enjoyed Hero, so. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're into those kinds of films, this I, mean, I haven't I haven't watched it yet either, uh, but I, you know, I mean, I love I love Asian films, I love uh, you know, I love wuxia films, I love martial arts films. Okay. You know, so th this so, looks to, to this looks to press all my buttons. Out of out of the horror genre and into the wuxia martial arts <laughs> Asian action film genre next time around. That sounds good to me, Stu. 
All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Hopefully that next episode sounds interesting to you, too. We will catch you then. Bye. The Unfranchised is a film podcast produced by the staff of Coltspark.com and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and other podcast providers. If you enjoy our show, please subscribe and leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. Your support is essential in our ability to highlight smaller films by growing our audience. You can follow our hosts on Twitter at Robert B. Taylor and at StubyDoo. For updates on The Unfranchised, please follow the show on Twitter at The Unfranchised or follow CultSpark on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at CultSpark. You can email us at theunfranchised at cultspark.com. Visit cultspark.com for print reviews and essays on films in the horror, sci-fi, fantasy, action, and noir genre.